Today's reading comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, and can be found on page 672 of the Church Bibles. So it's Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 to 6. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. This is the word of the Lord. If you'd like to uh, keep that passage open, um, today we continue in our rather irreverent series on uh, what vicars do, hatches, matches and dispatches, and today it's the latter. Now, of course, even at the most tragic times of life, tragedy and comedy often go together. I could spend the morning telling you about some. I will just start off with one or two. Like, there's a particular churchyard in the outskirts of Basingstoke where I've only done two funerals there. The first one, um, some of the mourners didn't quite find it on time and um, the coffin started floating, so I'm left with the choice of will it sink or will it rise to the top? The other occasion was when, uh, same churchyard, I went with the undertaker. You see this pile of earth in the distance, so you walk over to see, and as you get closer, you see earth coming out. He's still (laughs) digging it, really. That was a long walk back to make sure that uh, it had been finished by the time we reconnected with the mourners. Or sometimes um, you can be faced with an order of service, as I was once, and uh, uh, but you don't get it until the day, and you announce, you know, the funeral of whoever, and then you look at the order of service, and it's a different name, and you think, help. It's too late to ask them, isn't it, really? You can't do that. So uh, the deceased was referred to as our dear sister all the way through. <laughs> Fortunately for me, they had got this, the Christian name wrong, and I'd got it right, so that was a relief. Sometimes you can have enormous mood changes, particularly in crematorium, at the end of a service, because you don't always know what the music the family have chosen. You just press the button. And uh, when you've had the curtains close and you invite people to say a final prayer, and then there's a moment of silence, and you press the button... And on comes, come on, Eileen. (laughs) I've never forgotten her. Um, Or we did have the red, red robin comes bob, bob, bobbing along as well, really. That was also a surprise in a different way. So, you know, please just bear those things in mind if you... (laughs) When you're choosing things. Actually, I've put on the back of the order of service for you to take away some uh, thoughts that you might like to think over as you uh, prepare and react to this talk. So, 
What were your thoughts when we had this passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 7 read, particularly verse 2? It is better to go to the house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Did this man that wrote this know what he was saying? I mean, it must surely be a joke. It sounds so implausible that it's better to go to a wake than to a wedding reception. He must have had a rather warped perspective on life. Or you may just thought, oh dear, this is going to be extremely gloomy, and if I'd known, I wouldn't have come. Is this the Old Testament equivalent of Benedict Cumberbatch reciting the seven ages of man monologue from Shakespeare's As You Like It? The seven ages ends with last scene of all that ends this strange, eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sons teeth, sons eyes, sons taste, sons everything. We lose the lot. But trust me, and more importantly, trust the scriptures, because they say it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. One of the biggest family feastings in the Old Testament time would have been the wedding reception, which would have gone on for days of dancing and feasting and blessing. And yet, a wake is said to be better than celebrating a daughter's wedding and inviting the extended family and friends and community for such days of celebration. A wake is better than a wedding for us to go to. Why? Well, I think on examining this statement, we'll find it anything but gloomy. But why then does the teacher, as Solomon, King David's son, the author and compiler of Ecclesiastes, reckon that we are better off going to a funeral than to a celebration such as a birth, verse 1, or possibly a wedding, verse 2. Now we should say at the outset that it is perfectly legitimate for Christians to have celebrations. We don't become Christians to become miserable. We were, the the prayer book says, miserable when we were sinners. We become rather more positively disposed having become Christians. And it's right that there be celebrations for family events such as baptisms and birth, marriage, significant comings of age, anniversaries and the kind. But the kind of feast the teacher Solomon has in mind here is not simply something that is really a superficial, ephemeral social event, which is like, he says, the crackling of thorns burning under a pot. Picture that. They make a lot of noise, crackle, crackle. They shine brightly and sparkle in the night sky. They make an impact. They get the kettle hot. They make you feel warm. But they don't last. They last the length of boiling a pot to make you a brew. And then just ashes remain. In the teacher's statement, it is better to go to the house of mourning The house of mourning could cover such aspects as paying our our last respects to a friend who's died, 
attending their funeral, visiting the grave, conversing with those who mourn, and after reflection, benefiting by appropriating wisdom. It is better to go to the house of mourning than a house of feasting. And he gives four reasons. Death is the destiny of every man, verse 2. The living should take this to heart, verse 3. A sad face is good for the heart, verse 3. And the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, verse 4. As theologian Dr. Jim Packer pointed out, only when you know how to die can you know how to live. Or Dag Hammarskjöld, the Swedish economist and diplomat who was the second general secretary of the United Nations, said, no philosophy that cannot make sense of death can make sense of life either. So let's have a look. Death is the destiny of every person. This is about perspective on life. Now as Christians we have in a sense been granted a helicopter view of life. We're able to see life from God's perspective because we've adopted his take on it. We're able to see the past, the present and the future. We look back to the past and to the perfect creation. We look back to the tragedy of the fall. We look back to the intervention of God through Jesus Christ in redeeming us through his great sacrifice. And we look forward to the glorious resurrection at the very end of time. And in between what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do, we have our own mortality to contend with. The fool has no perspective. He shuts it out. He lives simply, as the Epicureans, the Greeks did, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now it's easy to see how our own demise is not so much at the forefront of our consciousness as it may have been for our grandparents and great-grandparents. Think back just a hundred years. I mean, when you, as we do here, have people coming to church each Sunday who are in their 90s, the rest of us can think, well, it's a long way off. They're still going. I've got 30 years yet. So effectively, even though we could be pensioners, we're functioning as if we're immortal. For all practical purposes, we don't think we're going to die. Of course, we know we are, but we don't think about it. It's not in our frame of reference. But a hundred years ago, it would not have been the case. Just a hundred years ago, there was the First World War. Remember, 1.1 million casualties from British and Commonwealth forces who died in that war. No village... No street, no family was unaffected by the First World War. When even then, in peacetime, normal life expectancy, I think, was between 48 and 56 years, 100 years ago. Infant mortality was very common. If you go back, if you're able to see any old church registers of births, marriages and deaths, in the death one, who are buried in the, uh, the churchyard, you will, the most common reference, 
will be child X died four months, child Y died three weeks, child Z died three days. My maternal grandmother had 13 younger brothers and sisters, but of course with that number, oh, two of them never survived infancy. My mother, as a consequence, had aunts who were younger than her. A hundred years ago, death was far more prevalent, and it helped their perspective on life. Death, funerals, acts of remembrance, visiting graves, helped to have a proper perspective on life. It helps us to see much more clearly the chronological context in which we live. Sure, life expectancy nudges up a bit each decade. They say half the children born this year will live to a hundred, but they will still die. Death, the teacher says, is the destiny of every man. And we should deeply register this simple, stark, unwelcome fact that sooner or later, with or without warning, Suddenly or slowly, we are all going to come to the end of our life. And the teacher says, the living should take this to heart. So let's allow that thought, that very simple inevitable fact, to go deep into our thinking, into the essential us, variously called the heart, the soul, the centre of our consciousness. The house of feasting is often full of froth, It's about image sometimes, more than substance. It is like a bubble we touch which then vanishes. It is like the perfume mentioned in verse 1 and the good name that is better than fine perfume. Fine perfume can be wickedly expensive when you think of the Mary who poured that alabaster jar of perfume onto Jesus' feet It was reported in the first century to have cost 300 denarii, which was a year's pay for a labourer. And yet, as pleasing as the smell of fine perfume is, it evaporates. And within 24 hours, you can smell it no more. A good name, though, what might have been called in an earlier generation a noble character, is better. A good character lasts. It's been built up over time and it stands the test of time. Indeed, a Christian character will survive death. A walk around a cemetery, particularly, I think, a military cemetery, is especially moving if you are a man and you look at the ages and you compare them to your own. I think it can help enormously to register this point that the teacher is making. As I've mentioned, I think, once or twice before, the first military cemetery that I ever went to was in Ranville. Ranville is in Normandy. It is the village above a bridge that is now called Pegasus, where my father had landed 75 years ago in a glider on the 6th of June, 1944. And just before I got married in 1984, I took him back there to see where he had fought those 40 years before. It was very moving for him when he saw for the first time the places where his friends who had been killed were buried. What moved me was actually to see, and I was a curate at the time, 
the tombstone of their padre who had been killed. Captain, um, with chaplain fourth class, which is the rank of captain, the Reverend Robert Edward Cape, MA, Sunday the 25th of June, 1944, aged 30. And I was 30 at exactly that time. And I was about to get married. He had left a young wife behind. That guy had his life ended. His life had been cut short. Mine had a future. In fact, it's doubled since. Or to be strictly honest, slightly more than doubled (laughs) since. It's instructive... I think, to read the epitaphs as you go round a cemetery. It makes you grateful for every day that you have lived. And the teacher's third argument in verse 3 is, sorrow is better than laughter, as a sad face is good for the heart. I suspect that we learn more when we're sad than when we are happy. In sadness, we detach ourselves from the things of this world much more easily and we become more sensitive to the teaching of God's word. In the house of mourning, the sorrowful person is more attentive. The sorrowful person can hear a pin drop. God only has to whisper to us when we are in sorrow, when we are suffering. It is harder for God to get through to us in good times, but so much easier in sad times. The sad face is good for the heart. Well, so far we've seen how being in the house of mourning enables us to get a proper perspective on life, gain a depth of life that would otherwise perhaps elude us, and we've seen how times of sadness can truly be times of learning, And the teacher's fourth and final point is that the house of mourning is the way of wisdom. The heart of the wise, the person who has acquired wisdom, is in the house of mourning, verse 4. It's similar to what Moses had observed, and it is similar to what's recorded in Psalm 90, where it says, Teach us to number our days aright, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Now, wisdom is the way to live this life, and the beginning of wisdom is the fear or respect of the Lord. And the prospect of death propels us towards the Lord, for there is no other answer to what happens beyond death than him. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, we are all immortal. It's just a question of where we spend our immortality. And death makes us face up to that question, where will we spend eternity? Whether we call it the heart or the soul or the essential us or our centre of consciousness, where will it be after our body has packed up, that we've died? Now the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, like Ecclesiastes, is very good at raising questions and providing very shrewd observations on life, observations which make us think. But we have to go to the New Testament for a fully-fledged answer. We may be prompted to reflect on our own mortality at the funeral of a friend or family member, but what's the Christian hope 
if I entrust my life, my eternity, into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you turn with me to page 1160, 1160, you'll find 2 Corinthians 5. Now this is not a second sermon, but it's a rapid-fire answer to the question raised by Solomon in Ecclesiastes. 2 Corinthians 5.1, page 1160. And verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. In other words, when we lose this physical body at death, there is another place to live, heaven. And then on the last day, we will receive our resurrection bodies. Ones like the Lord Jesus Christ had after his resurrection. Tangible, and yet they could appear and disappear. Well, back to the text, verse 2. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked, For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. You see, Paul is convinced that God will deliver on that promise. We will eventually get an eternal resurrected body. Jim Packer again. Being born into the temporal world was our initial birthday. Then being born into God's spiritual kingdom, where he became our father and we his child, that was our second birthday. So he says being born through physical death into the eternal world will be our third birthday. Verse 5, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, the word for deposit in uh, New Testament Greek is arabon, and it started off its meaning being the initial payment for something which, when it's completed and we make the final payment, it becomes ours. Apparently, in modern Greek, that same word can also mean an engagement ring. And I guess most women are smart enough to reckon that if the guy has paid out a small fortune for this ring, the much cheaper wedding ring is bound to follow. I can't claim to think as women do, but I'm using my imagination as much as I can. And Paul reckons that we have received God's presence in our lives now through the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, All that he has promised will be completed. And then verse 6. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And that's significant because although after death we are immediately disembodied, but we're still not unconscious. We will eventually, after being with Christ in spirit, 
acquire at the new creation a resurrected body just like his was. And we will have the conscious awareness at home with the Lord. We will all know him. It's not a question of dying and then we go into a coma for however long. No, there is conscious, exist- conscious awareness. We go to be with Christ. Immediately we die if we've entrusted ourselves to him in this life. And verse 9, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home with the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each of us must receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So we are saved by faith. We could not earn our salvation, since perfection is the standard. We have to be given it by having our past forgiven. But we are judged by our works. In the jargon of today, we have an evidence-based salvation. For the apostle thinks that the genuine believer should display good works, the fruit of the Spirit, albeit imperfectly in his or her life. And he hints that there may be varying degrees of reward in the next life. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, said, There are only two days in my calendar, today and that day, by which he meant the day of judgment, the day of the Lord's return, the day of the new creation when there is a new heaven and a new earth, and God will be with man, and man will be with God, as close as they were in the Garden of Eden, paradise that has been lost will be regained. Luther's desire was to live every day in the light of the fact that one day he would stand before Christ and then be with him forever. So perhaps more visits to the house of mourning, to the cenotaph or cemetery, will help us all understand both the encouragement and the challenge of living this way. Let us pray. Eternal Lord God, you hold all souls in life. Shed forth, we pray, upon your whole church in paradise and on earth, the bright beams of your light and heavenly comfort, and grant that we, following the good example of those who have loved and served you here and are now at rest, may at the last enter with them into the fullness of your eternal joy, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.